We've been uh, working our way this year through the gospel of Mark, trying to get to know Jesus better, grow up in Him, and learn uh, how to be a more faithful church. This morning, we'll be continuing looking at the significant events that took place during the final week of Jesus' life. The last third of Mark is devoted to, to a mere seven days. I hope this will be an encouragement uh, to you. There are, um, there are some passages in Scripture, many actually, that just, just uh, by, by means of the Spirit, a one single reading makes what's going on evident. There, there are others that feel a bit more uh, like a safe that's got to be cracked. This is one of those. So if I can mix my metaphors from a a safe to a mountain. Um, Maybe you've driven up to Flagstaff and uh, taken, I forget the name of the hike, but there's a hike that goes up Mount Humphreys. Anybody done that and survived it? Yes, quite a few of you actually, all right. Um, So that hike sort of feels like you, you get going on it and you've driven halfway up the mountain, so that's cheating, but you've driven halfway up, you start hiking, it's pretty, it's fun, and the mountain is there, and you, you think, this isn't too bad. But pretty soon, it becomes no fun at all. Because there's multiple places in which it looks like you're at the top, but you're not at the top. And so you reach that peak, and it's a false peak, and you've got to press on further. And then when you finally reach the top, you look out, and it's incredibly beautiful, but it's hard to get there. My guess is your experience this morning is going to feel like that. All right? But when we get to the top, the peak is really amazing. It's worth the climb. In the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem as the promised and victorious king. But then he went to the temple and found it devoid of any appropriate worship. And so there's there's a note of irony that all these prophecies in the Old Testament indicating that one day God would return to the temple, that's, that's happened in Jesus, and His glory is there, and yet nothing significant seems to happen. Nobody seems to notice or care. That's because at this point in time in the nation's history, the worshipers were accustomed to honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. Starting in verse 12, we pick back up the story the next day. Jesus and his disciples have left Jerusalem, gotten some sleep, and now they're making their way back to the city where a full day of events will unfold, and that's what we'll be considering. This is one of the most controversial passages in the whole Gospel of Mark because it doesn't fit the mold of what we expect uh, from Jesus. It's broadly misunderstood. And so, as we sort of climb Mount Humphreys together this morning, I'd encourage you to just roll up your sleeves and do the the hard work of thinking, allowing your perceptions of Jesus to perhaps be reshaped this morning. So look with me, if you would, at verse 12. On the following day, they came from Bethany. He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. 
He came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. That is a bizarre paragraph. There's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. Most of it's in the Old Testament. But this one qualifies as weird in the New Testament. On the surface, it appears that the disciples woke up, and as they're taking their stroll from Bethany to Jerusalem, Jesus' tummy got grumbling. And so he's looking around for something to eat, comes across a tree. There's a tree in the distance, a fig tree. And he thinks maybe that will yield food. And so every Waffle House, for some reason they've passed, is closed. But the fig tree, maybe the fig tree will provide something. Jesus got hungrier and hungrier with every step toward that tree. And the story seems to indicate that because it had leaves, he assumed that would mean it had figs. The passage appears to say that he got excited about the possibility of figs. Now, I don't understand why anyone would do that. But upon closer examination, he reaches the tree, he finds there's no figs, and in a moment of impulsivity, it appears Jesus used his superpowers to curse the tree. In a word, it appears Jesus was hangry. That is, in hunger, he was angry, and then he threw a hissy fit. This passage appears to show Jesus, in other words, behaving like a toddler. And what makes it even worse is the passage appears to say it would have been impossible for that tree to have figs because it wasn't yet time for the tree to have figs. It appears to be a case of Jesus should have already known that, but he didn't, and so he took it out on the tree, rendering it useless forever because of his lack of knowledge. That's what a cursory reading of this passage appears to say, but appearances can be deceiving. There's more to this story than meets the eye, but to see it, we've got to go on to the next paragraph. To uncover what's actually happening, we've got to read on. So verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything into the temple. He was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Well, it appears... The hangry continued. That one paragraph that seemed rather bizarre becomes a second paragraph that seems downright blasphemous. 
Hangry Jesus became rage monster Jesus. Tossing tables, turning over chairs. Another gospel tells us he made a whip and used it. He's yelling at people to get out of the temple. Doesn't this seem like full-on Incredible Hulk temper tantrum? The chief priest and the scribes, those are the people who would in part have been in charge of the temple. And they're so upset, verse 18 tells us, that they instantly started to find a way to destroy him. That's a euphemistic way of saying they wanted to kill him. They immediately began conspiring. This guy must die. In their minds, his actions were so egregious, so blasphemous, they were convinced rage monster Jesus must become never take another breath Jesus. And yet in a sense, they were handcuffed because the The people loved him. The leaders feared him, but the people loved him. He was popular with the masses because he was so unlike anybody else. And so we're left with some big questions. Like, for example, after 33 years of sinlessness, facing all kinds of hardship, did Jesus fall apart in back-to-back incidents on the same day because he was hungry? First, the helpless fig tree, and second, the most important place in the world, the temple. Additionally, why would Jesus cause so much chaos in the first place? I mean, he'd had moments with the disciples where they said such incredibly stupid things. It would seem like those would be the times he would blow his top. Why now? Why particularly in the temple? I mean, people in the Old Testament in multiple places were commanded, when you go to the temple, if you've sinned, which is everybody, then you've got to buy, if you're poor, buy a pigeon, or if you have more means, you buy a more expensive animal and offer that animal as a sacrifice, and God would look on the death of that animal in your place, cleansing you, allowing you into the worship God? Aren't they doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing? The fig tree had leaves and appeared to be working as it was supposed to, and Jesus cursed it. The temple leadership has set up a system through which people can obey the Old Testament laws, cleansing people, bringing them into worship, and yet Jesus went all rage monster on them. He's just days away from his death. Can he not hold it together a few more days? What in the world is up with Jesus? Well, it turns out we need the third paragraph to answer these questions. And just to prepare you, even the explanation paragraph is not immediately self-evident. So we're at that moment where sort of the fun of the hike is beginning to end. Our hearts are beating out of our chests. We can't hardly catch a breath. 
What in the world is going on? Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, so the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said has come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This has gone from bad to worse. Mark uses a particular literary strategy several times in his book. It begins, he begins with a story that seems rather bizarre, and he just tells us it without any interpretation at all. Here's what happened. And then he moves on to another story that appears unrelated, only to then come back to the original issue, which turns out to draw all of it together. Now, um, in the past, when we've come to these moments in the passage, I've called it a sandwich. So there's the first issue, top bun, ending paragraph, bottom bun, meet in the middle. You remember that? Okay. Now, most people, even scholars, will call it a Markin. It's named after Mark. You got to change the Mark to make yourself sound smart. A Markin sandwich. But in staff devotional on Thursday, uh, Tanyan, is he in here? Tanyan. Tanyan, one of our pastoral residents, who's also a deacon here, suggested instead of calling this a sandwich, we should call it an inverted fig newton. <laughs> that made a lot of sense to me because you got the sticky figs in the top, or you're supposed to, sticky figs on the bottom, and then the crust in the middle. Now, let me attempt to explain, all right? So the first paragraph is the fig tree being cursed. The third paragraph is the fulfillment of the fig tree being cursed. Both of those function to explain the middle of what happened in the temple. Everybody with me? Okay. So that's what's going on. But what does it mean? What's the point? Well, let your eyes, if you would, glance back over verses 12, 13, and 14. What I would submit to you for your consideration is this is not a case of hangry Jesus at all. In fact, he orchestrated the entire thing in order to communicate a truth about what he was about to do in the temple. He used the fig tree as an object lesson for what was coming up. The fig tree serves as a, a living parable of the fruitless temple. Both the tree and the temple were failing to fulfill their function. 
In fact, the religious leaders especially, but the nation as a whole, had largely turned their backs on God. They had settled for a religious sham, something that looked like worship. You could see it with your eyes and assume they were doing the right things. But that's not how God looks at worship. God looks at the heart. God's not interested at all in external action that's disconnected from a heart warmed by Him deeply in love with Him. So Jesus' act of judgment in the temple was so unimaginable. I mean, they could have never, ever, ever conceived that He would behave the way He did when He got into the temple. The disciples, I mean. And so, on the way to the temple, Jesus cursed the fig tree to help the disciples understand in a symbolic way his cursing of the temple. You see, the fruitless fig tree symbolized Israel and the judgment that was about to become fit upon it. We don't have time this morning to go through them, but there's a bunch of places in the first two-thirds of your Bible in the Old Testament where Israel is described or pictured or symbolized as a fig tree. And its presence or absence of figs described their spiritual condition. For most of us, we're not just sort of oozing with Old Testament knowledge, and so it's not readily obvious. But the readers of Mark, after the fact, who had come to know the Lord, the Jews, would have understood One commentator put it this way, just so you know I'm not completely off my rocker, here's somebody smart that's written a book, okay? I think it'll be on the screens. Just as the leaves of the tree concealed the fact that there was no fruit to enjoy, so the magnificence of the temple and its ceremony conceals the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. Make sense? From a distance, the fig tree looked like, seemed as though it were fruitful. The leaves were full and vibrant. It appeared fertile. But upon closer closer inspection, there was nothing. And the fact that it wasn't quite fig tree, figs a season yet... And yet Jesus went looking for figs, only reinforces the point. His actions against the tree weren't in the end about the tree at all. The tree simply represents Israel. Jesus cursed the fig tree and then continued on to the temple. As he headed up the steps, what would he have seen? Maybe sometime later today, just Google... The temple in Jerusalem in the first century, something like that. And what you'll find is um, artistic renderings of it. What, What we have today with computers is amazing. This building would have been one of the grandest in the entire world. And as you came through the gates, turned, and went up the steps, the, the way the temple was situated, the sun in the morning, would hit the side of this marble and gold structure that was enormous, and it would just look like it's on fire. 
I mean, it's brilliant. As Jesus turned and made his way up and he saw that, he knew nothing glorious in that glorious structure is happening. As the morning sunrise hit the marble and the gold, people flooded into the temple. This was Passover season. And so, the, most of what we know from this era of time outside of the Bible is written by a guy who wasn't a Christian. His name was Josephus. He was a, a Jewish historian. And Josephus describes the Passover season a, a little bit after this event would have happened. He says one year that there were 256,000 lambs bought and then offered as sacrifice the week of Passover. Can you imagine the sights, the smells? Where would you put a quarter of a million lambs? Jesus walked up to the temple, and, and what he observed was simply chaos. As he turned the corner through the gate into the temple, he entered almost certainly what was known as the court of the Gentiles. This first section of the temple wasn't inside a building itself, it's open air, but it had a wall around it. It was the size of approximately three football fields. This was the area where the Gentiles were allowed to worship. They were not part of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. And yet, all nations have always been invited into the worship of God. And so they were allowed to come there. And there, they could sing, they could pray, they could hear teaching, they could offer sacrifices. They weren't allowed in the building itself, but Gentiles devoted to God could worship there. And so Jesus is standing there in the court of the Gentiles, but instead of being a holy place of quiet, reflective, significant worship, Jesus instead found that the Jewish leaders had turned it into a noisy thoroughfare so that you didn't have to go all the way around and enter through the gate. Instead, you just trek right through in order to get into the temple. The Jewish leaders displayed a complete disregard for the Gentiles and their place of worship. They simply didn't care. They turned it into sort of a mix between the county fair and a huge outdoor market because they brought all those animals in their pens into the Gentile place of worship. So imagine... Every now and then in here, we have a kid cry out or an adult phone ring, well, that's every week, and um, a baby cry or something, or the door gets slammed. But imagine you're trying to worship, and there's 100,000 sheep, and it smells, and then you, you had to pay a temple tax, and because your coins, your Roman coins, 
had images of gods on them, false gods, then you had to exchange that for money that was regarded as more appropriate to give to God. And inside of the court of the Gentiles, they've set up money-changing stations, and they're upcharging. So, I assume you know this, but just a life tip. If you're traveling internationally and you see in the airport these places to exchange your money, don't use those. Because if you're trying to take a dollar, for example, into a euro, then they're going to tell you your dollar is worth less and your euro is worth more. And so you're actually paying money to get money. That's exactly what these guys were doing. And they were doing it inside the place of worship. Maddie and Brandon, thank you for being an illustration to us <laughs> with sage of noise and distraction. <laughs> Just perfect. All of that's happening where there's supposed to be worship. Do you see the problem? Israel gave the appearance of concern for the right worship of God. But upon closer inspection, their worship impeded the Gentiles and showed itself to be nothing but hollow formality. They were just going through the motions. They were a people who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. It is a very, very, very serious thing to pretend to worship. It is a very serious thing to impede others worshiping. These folks offered religious practices without real piety. They had a formality without faith, a religiosity without repentance, a busyness without brokenness, an activity without adoration, acclaiming Him as Lord without any love for Him. Similar things had happened at other points in Israel's history, and so the prophets had consistently condemned and preached against such mockery, bringing about a promise of judgment, and yet also giving promises about a day when things would be different. A day where one day God would bring an end to phony worship and produce genuine worshipers who are worshiping from changed hearts. A way in which external phony worship wouldn't happen anymore because there would be a changed heart and then from the heart where the Spirit would reside would be genuine worship. And so that mix of judgment and promise of something better in a new covenant, that mix is why in verse 17, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He quoted from Isaiah when he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus is saying, this place you regard as the most holy place on earth, at least with your lips you acknowledge that. That's my house. And my house is to be a place, will be actually it says, shall, my house shall be somewhere where the nations are being prayed for. 
not a place where the nations are being hindered in their worship. And then he quoted from Jeremiah in the next phrase, but you have made it a, quote, den of robbers. When robbers go out and commit their crimes, where do they go? They go home. They go to their den, their hiding place. This is extremely provocative. Jesus is saying, you've turned the temple into a place where you hang out in your cheating of God. Beloved, by turning over the tables, by running out the money changers, by clearing the court of the Gentiles, Jesus is not merely reforming or cleaning up Old Testament temple worship. That's what I used to think was happening here. But that's softening this so much. Jesus isn't reforming worship. He is condemning and ending it because it's not real. Their pretension, their fake obedience, their disregard that the nations would know God, their indifference to God Himself, all of this brought about its very predictable end, judgment and destruction. It would just be a few years after this event that the temple would literally be torn block by block by block to the ground, leveled, and it has never, ever, ever been rebuilt. By cursing the fig tree and overturning the temples, Jesus indicated an imminent end to temple worship. And then he describes that in verse 22 in sort of poetic language. He says, this mountain... What mountain? The temple mount. The mount where the temple is on. This mountain can be taken up and thrown into the sea. What's the sea? What's the place of judgment? Jesus is describing taking the temple, putting it in a place of judgment because the people had failed to worship God rightly. And thereby he's describing, now listen, I know we're at, like, we've already come to one false peak on our climb. There's another one, okay? Hang with me. He's describing an end to this whole approach of coming to God because it simply hasn't worked. The temple sacrifices were about to be replaced with a far better sacrifice. One that would render the 256,000 lambs every year completely unnecessary. One that would make it possible, not only make it possible, but guarantee there would be people qualified, if you will, to worship God rightly because they wouldn't have a mere external cleansing, but a radical change of heart. And the Spirit would no longer fill a building, but fill a people. Jesus, you see, by virtue of His death, would render the temple completely unnecessary. The curtain would be torn in two, the end of sacrifices, and 
it would open a way for all who repent and believe to be welcome in the presence of God forever. All of this would have been completely unimaginable, incomprehensible to Jesus' disciples. And so to give them some at least sense of what was about to happen, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And then he brought judgment on the temple. And then in the last paragraph, he ties it all together by telling them, in the new covenant, after my death and resurrection, you will be able to pray going directly into the presence of God anywhere, anytime. Because I will render you guiltless, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We could summarize this really complex passage this way. In holy judgment, Jesus rendered the temple obsolete, and he prepared his people for life in the new covenant. We're now at the peak. Look around. When you sin, Christian, you don't have to travel from wherever you live, go all the way to Jerusalem, climb up the steps, use your hard-earned money to buy a price-gouged lamb. You try saying it. Offer that sacrifice, experience cleansing of your sin, and then on your way home, sin again, only to need to turn around and go back. I'd had no money at all. This is not a simple passage but it has a simple message. Jesus rendered the temple, its worship there, obsolete. And he showed what a preview for the disciples of what life would be like in the new covenant, where the kind of praying that everyone had longed to be able to do could be done. Would you consider with me in our remaining couple of moments the significance of what's under this passage in two broad headings? Number one, God cares that what He creates behaves in ways congruent with why it exists. Let me say that again. God cares that what He creates behaves in ways congruent with why it exists. For example, the temple existed so sinners could be cleansed and then worship and pray in the presence of God. But that place had become a place instead of hypocrisy. God cares about that. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, another, another example. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then understand that you are living contrary to the very reason you exist. People were made to image God and to image Him as people in relationship with Him. And yet, 
for those of us who sin, which is all of us, there is a chasm between us and God that cannot be fixed by virtue of any moral or ethical action on our part. And so it becomes impossible to live for the very reason that you've lived. And everyone who's ever lived has been in that situation, except for Jesus. People exist for the right worship of God. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, do you want to, for the very first time, begin to live for the reason you're alive? Then you don't have to go buy a lamb, which is good because I have no idea where you would do that. You do, though, have to bend the knee to God and say, God, I have made a mockery of you and why I was made. And I, though, believe that Jesus can fix that because Jesus became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so I give myself to you. Would you give me back the purity of Jesus? And he'll do it. Number two, Christians, you were born and reborn for the purposes of worship. You were born and reborn for the purposes of worship. And yet, it is easy for us to corrupt it. Even as new covenant people who have been given new hearts, whose minds are being transformed, who positionally in Christ are as holy as we're ever going to get. It can't be improved. It is already perfect. We can still be inauthentic and insincere in spiritual matters. We can still pretend. And so when we come into the New Testament house of God, the church, we must not go through the motions but have sincere, devoted focus on Him. There is today a general triteness, a casualness, a sense of flippancy about coming into the presence of God in gathered worship. And I pray today that that would change, at least for us, for this church. Not that we have to come in stuffy and um, uptight, and quiet, and sort of judgmental toward each other. I don't mean that. But I mean coming with hearts so overwhelmed by the love and majesty of God that He's put us into this family, and that we're welcome before Him and worship together. In the New Covenant, we need not buy sacrifices to come to worship. Jesus gave himself as the once for all sacrifice. We can go straight to God in prayer, asking God to do tremendous things for his kids. And this passage tells us that he hears and that he answers. We must be authentic and sincere 
all that means is when we have our confession in the gathering, when we recognize our sin via a song or a, a, um, a reading or a prayer, that we're assessing our own hearts, where have I failed since I've last been here and giving that to God. First John 1.9 says, many of you probably know it, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Why just? Doesn't that word seem weird there? Faithful makes sense. Why is it just for God to forgive? It's because there's no double jeopardy with God. That sin has already been placed on Jesus. Jesus already died for it. It would be unjust for God to hold it against you. That is beautiful. As verse 25 points out, we must have hearts committed to basic Christianity. Things like forgiving others the way we've been forgiven. That is sincere, authentic, acceptable worship. Let's pray.